So you ever have a Swedish fish? I have had Swedish fish. What do you think about it? Where would you rate that candy? Um, on the candy scale. High. It's high for me. It is? I mean, as far as candies off the shelf go, it's high. Shelf candy. Shelf candy? It's simple, but it's sweet. That's how people describe me. I'm simple, but I'm sweet. I've never heard anyone describe you that way. Well, you haven't heard people. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back <laughs> to the Cult Popcast. This is the Florence Pugh Podcast once again. Take three. We had a tragic loss in talking about a film mm-hmm. that talks about death. Yeah. We had a death. It was a reflection really on our own mortality more than anything. Because when it happened, I looked at Steve and he had the most forlorn look in his eyes. <laughs> like everything had come to an end. Everything had come to an end. We recorded an hour and a half midsummer podcast to follow up the lighthouse. And we wanted to release them together as a companion piece to each other. And uh, after that, entire session was recorded with guest appearances. Uh, the file was corrupted. And it sounded like Mr. Talkbox had <laughs> dropped in for the podcast. Oh, gosh. And one day we'll release that. And, and what? <laughs> no, we won't. Please. And one of us was very angry. I was upset, but I didn't want to further bring you down. Right. So I put on a brave face. <laughs> you did? <laughs> well, I was also just happy to be there drinking good dry whiskey. That's true. And be talking with interesting people. Yeah. About fun things. I I was mostly upset because the whole time that we were talking, I was in, in my head I was thinking, this is great stuff. People are gonna really enjoy what we have to say here. And <laughs> And they never will. And now they can never hear it. And really, for myself, I have a higher standard, I think, than most people even care about this podcast, that I want to make content that appreciates the art that people put out in the world, so that even if the, the artist like, were to hear us, that they would actually somewhat enjoy what we have to say. Yeah. And You want to match the quality of the product. Yeah, exactly. Which is high. <laughs> exactly. So I was extremely bummed for that reason because I thought the things we were bringing up and, and the conversation and also the levity surrounding the conversation, the, or, the organic banter. I had some good quips in there. I was really bummed that we lost that conversation and albeit it happened at 10 o'clock at night. And then because it took so much for us to get into one room together, we decided to essentially, after we realized we couldn't salvage the recording, we decided to start re-recording again at 1030. So the quality of this recording may not be the most energized because I think not only were we downtrodden, but we were all getting pretty tired at that point. But we did remember most of what we had said, although it happened in a different order. We hit a lot of the same notes. That's what I was trying to yeah. say. But yeah. but yeah, the energy was slightly lower. I was thinking about rye whiskey the whole time, so I was <laughs> constantly trying to focus. What is this rye that you speak of? It was delicious. That should be our fake ad next time, is <laughs> whatever that whiskey was. It was very good. So... Gabe, who do we have with us today? Who do we have with us today? So Gabe, besides us, we have two people with us today who also appreciate Midsommar, who appreciate it more than I. We have the series regular, my wife, Allie Burnett. Thanks for that. Regular would imply she's here every week. I don't know. I, I wish she was. <laughs> Thank I you. Do, because it Thank would be nice to have female that. representation on the podcast every mm. time. So it's mm. not just a two guys in a dark room hanging out. What's wrong with that? <laughs> and on top of Allie... On top but, uh, of me. but also but also on the side is uh, my sister Kristen Burnett. I just have to say Kristen is a wonderful human being. She's intelligent, insightful. She's a musician as well as a professor of literature and a kindred spirit to us all. I think in the room right now. Very talented. Welcome to the Cult Popcast. Kristen also has a very analytical mind. And because of that, she has great analysis of film and media, and I love talking to her and picking her brain. She was actually supposed to be here with us last time for The Lighthouse, but that did not work out. And so we're really excited for her to be here with us today for Midsummer, Midsummer. Gabe, how do you pronounce this? So it's Midsummer. Okay. I call it Midsummer because uh, 
it's that's, easier. That's easier on my brain. It's so it's like when we were doing the Joker or Joker, <laughs> and the whole time I was thinking it was pronounced another way. So it's not a big deal. Right. So we're gonna jump into some stats before we get into the discussion. But first, I have to say, spoiler warning: once again, it's impossible to talk about this film without spoiling it. So here's your spoiler warning. Stat time. Some information about the film. Yeah. We could start with the budget. It was a modest 10 to $11 million budget, which was, I think it was about the same for Hereditary. Why are Ari Aster's films more expensive than Robert Eggers' films? Price tag is a little higher. Why did A24 decide to give Ari Aster more money? My thought was that Robert Eggers' films are incredibly stylistic, even more so than Aster. So I think to retain his creative liberty... He probably wasn't allowed as much of a paycheck, or mm-hmm. he took a cut, maybe. Mm-hmm. Usually that's how it works with directors and right. the films they want to produce, these auteurs. 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 Um, but that might not be the case at all. Maybe Ari asked A24 just for more money. I know that Ari and Robert both have very good relationships with A24. Yeah. Specifically the producer. And and who is Ari Aster? Oh. Ari is the director of Midsommar, and that was last year, and then the year before, exactly a year before, he did Hereditary, which were his first and second films. So, And he was actually working on Midsommar for about five years. Yeah. I don't know exactly what the timeline is, but before Hereditary was even being made, he had been writing scripts since he was in college at AFI when he graduated like 10 years ago, and he's got a, like a dozen laying around still that he'd probably end up making next but he sort of wrote hereditary and midsummer around the same time he's dealing with a lot in his personal life specifically with midsummer a swedish company had commissioned him i think to write a full horror film for sweden and it happened to coincide with some drama in his life he was going through a very difficult breakup so he merged those two creative conceits and he created midsummer which is in his own words a fairy tale film horror adjacent yeah horror adjacent what it really for most of the characters it's full horror yeah told through a breakup <laughs> while we're on this really quick talking about a24 ari aster also sort of in comparison with robert eggers we had talked about this in the lighthouse podcast but there was this podcast that a24 put out where robert eggers and ari aster had a conversation with one another and great podcast in that episode they talked about a lot of their influences so they have very similar influences that we had named previously ingmar bergman david lynch stanley kubrick a lot of gothic imageries they are both cinephiles, the great lovers of film. And a quarter of that hour-long podcast is spent talking about directors that I'd never even heard the names of, you know, outside of Bergman and the obvious ones. So they were constantly talking about the filmmakers that inspired them and the filmmakers that inspired the filmmakers that inspire them. So it's funny for me because I'm one level below that. I'm inspired by Ari and Robert, and I'm curious about the people above them. So it's it's really encouraged me at least to, and what I'd like to do soon is go through a lot of Ingmar Bergman's films. And that was one thing they had brought up too, that it's it's always good to try to go look at the things that are inspiring the things that you're inspired by. Yeah, trace it to the source. <laughs> and particularly with this film, a couple influences from Midsommar were Wicker Man. <laughs> Not the bees. <laughs> we watched some clips from that the other day. There's the original Wicker Man, but the Nick Cage Wicker Man is an incredible piece of cinema, if anyone's interested. And but he, make sure you have a drink with it. And another influence was he wanted to try to make the whole movie feel like you're undergoing a drug trip. Yeah, which I've been told by those who've done drugs that it was very um, successful in portraying that. <laughs> I I wouldn't know. We should talk about his team. Before I'd even recommend the production team, I would say his DP, his director of photography, whose name is is notoriously difficult for me to pronounce. <laughs> But it's just as instrumental in, in Ari Aster's films. It's Pavel Podgorzelski. One Which, more time. Well, it's spelled P-A-W-E-L, but I think it's a V. Pavel. Pavel po- Podgorzelski. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible eye for picture, that man. The way they shot Hereditary and then Midsummer. Midsummer is a whole other beast because of all the natural light in the film. They actually had custom lenses made for each of those movies because Pavel has such a excellent working relationship with Panavision. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. And Ari Aster was already working with his production designer that yeah. he was already working with. He didn't get to work with the one from Hereditary. Henrik Svensson. And Henrik started creating a lookbook that they would send back and forth to one another. 
and Ari would add stuff to it and send it back. And then Henrik would add more stuff and get inspired. And, and it would just go back and forth like that for a while. Uh, imagine if that lookbook got lost. <laughs> yeah. Or was donated to the public. Right. Ari and his entire team put an incredible amount of research into making sure that these traditions were honored and accurate. These sort of festivals occur. Yeah, the Scandinavian holiday. I don't think uh, the ritualistic sacrifice is as big right now. Celebrating the summer solstice. Ari actually said in an interview that there's some sketchy stuff going on in that area. I'm not sure exactly how much he drew for the macabre kind of stuff but bear murder (laughs) a person murder (laughs) with bears yeah so that was the production designer (laughs) the costume designer andrea flesh she might be from sweden or hungary as well but she and her team custom made all the outfits for the film i believe that and this whole production was incredibly rushed. I don't think we even said yet. As Ari Aster was finishing Hereditary in post, he was working on the edit before the summer of 2018. That's when Midsummer got greenlit. And so he had to start working on that in pre-production, <laughs> getting his team together while he was finishing Hereditary. And the day after Hereditary premiered in June, he went straight into the pre-production process over in wherever they shot. I think it was Hungary. And they built everything and they created everything in two months. They shot it and they did post and everything was turned around in a year, which is an incredibly quick. Yeah, I remember seeing the trailer for Midsommar, which I thought, which is incredible. Both both Hereditary and Midsommar trailers were amazing to me. Um, yeah. But I remember seeing the trailer thinking, whoa, that filmmaker pumped that movie out somehow. I wonder if it's going to be as good because it, I was like assuming it was rushed. Yeah, I think he was very concerned as well. I remember he also said in that same podcast that we were just talking about that he would find places that were kind of secluded and he would just go and cry on set. And he wondered whether people thought that he was just laughing maniacally or sobbing intensely. Yeah. I can't imagine uh, going from a project where he had time like Hereditary. Yeah. And which was incredibly well received, especially for his first feature. Right. And then to be thrust into Midsummer, which is something he really was into as well, but didn't have the the time that he would have liked to have put into it Mm -hmm. and still produce an incredible movie. I personally like Midsommar a lot more than Hereditary. I like them both a lot. Midsommar, for reasons that don't have to do with what makes a film objectively good, uh, appealed to me more. I think Hereditary is incredible. Just shout out real quick his editor, uh, Luke Johnston, who assisted on Hereditary. Hereditary is actually edited by Jennifer Lame, who did Marriage Story this year. Oh, yeah. Or last year. And she's working on Tenant. Christopher Nolan's new film. Mm. Ari couldn't get Jennifer back, but he got the next best thing, which is Luke Johnston. And they had a very close working relationship in post because Ari likes to make long movies. So in the editing room, there's there's a lot of contention between him, his editor, and the studio and what finally gets released. He actually had a couple different cuts come out throughout the process of theatrically releasing his film. But they uh, they did a great job. And his producer, too, is the last one, I would say. I think his name is Lars Knudsen. Yeah. 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 Classic Lars. Yeah. I think so. Lars is the A24 guy who works closely with Ari and these other filmmakers to make sure that they're um, being allowed to do what they can do to make the movie good. It's cool to see a studio supporting the filmmaker rather than being a draconian kind of bloodsucker. <laughs> yeah. And both Robert Eggers and Ari Aster were praising A24 for them giving them the opportunity to make these movies. Oh, and we can't forget the composer, Bobby Krillick. I'm not sure if he did it under his usual artist handle, which is the Hacks and Cloak. I think he did it under his own name. But Bobby Krillick's score was incredible, and it was a big part of setting up the tone for the whole movie. From the intro scene, where you hear those strings, and it's, it's kind of imitating Danny's wailing, and then it goes into the drums. It's very exciting. And then the final track in the film is 10 minutes long, and it just accompanies the entire climax of the movie. It begins with Danny making the decision to condemn Christian... Um, but it's really haunting and it, it's weird because the whole thing is very gruesome and dark, but the music and the imagery is very light. And then the last 30 seconds of it, where you see Danny as she stops crying and she starts to smile, it becomes very haunting and you're left with this kind of really uncomfortable feeling as the movie ends. It's really interesting. Let's talk about the cast really quick. Yeah. You got your girl. My favorite actress working right now out of the two films I've seen her in. <laughs> 
Uh, Florence Pugh. Upcoming Black Widow. That's, what an incredible range. Gabe had no interest to see Black Widow, and I convinced him Until... that Florence Pugh is in it, and that's just reason enough. Yeah. I actually, I was not into her Russian accent <laughs> initially. It's grown on me a little bit, and I think if I can get past the schlock, I mean, they're all speaking in Russian. The campy. In, in Gabe's wildest fantasy, Florence Pugh is speaking Russian to him. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, speaking Russian with a Russian accent, I don't know what she's saying. Uh, she was the... Main character, Danny, who was kind of the conduit for um, Ari Aster in this film. A lot of his personal experiences were poured into Danny, and so she was experiencing what he was feeling at the time of writing. There is Jack Rayner as Jack Rayner her Christian. boyfriend, Christian, her um, reluctant partner <laughs> in in this film. We got... Uh, Will Poulter is Mark. He's the jester uh, or the asshole. And I know him from Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah, that's the first thing I always think of, yeah, too. Yeah, He's yeah. this... Eustace, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's he's kind of blown up. Yeah. I think he was supposed to be Pennywise in the new It, and then when that initial production team fell through, he left as well, and that's when they got Skarsgård, who did a phenomenal job. But Will Poulter, you could tell he has that kind of scary face. Yeah. <laughs> resting scary face. He's a great actor, though. All, all these guys were um, European of some sort, other countries, except for this next guy who played Josh, the resident American, William Jackson Harper. If you want to stick with genre roles, he's the intellectual or the, the scholar, I guess you could call him. Uh, and then rounding out the main cast is Pele. He is the friend that brings all these characters to Sweden because it is his homeland for the celebration. And he's played by Wilhelm Blomgren. Blomgren. You want to read it? Wilhelm Blomgren. Yeah. Do you feel held by him? Do you feel held by him? And so that's the main cast. And there's a bunch of secondary characters who are all great. A lot of the native Horgans are from Sweden and Hungary. What'd you call me? Horgan. That's the village they go to in Sweden. It's Horga or Helsingland. All right, guys, you want to jump into the discussion? (laughs) (laughs) Today we're talking about Midsommar. Agreed. Gabe. This was your favorite film of last year. Yes, it was. And it's also Kristen and Allie kind of said it might be her favorite film from last year. Maybe even the decade. So if we could just say really quick why that is. I mean, Lighthouse was my clear front runner. So why was Midsommar your favorite film from last year? Go for it, Gabe. Uh, I think what Ari Aster's doing in... It's not entirely fair to call this horror uh, this time around. Hereditary was explicitly so, but... In this kind of wave of films that we've been seeing coming out of A24, and from a lot of young directors, actually, a lot of these people that have been making quality films in the last year were in their 30s, specifically with Midsummer. So this is a film that is kind of critiquing a lot of modern societal conventions that are happening. Like, in this case, it's the, basically, in my eyes, the modern relationship. But also that extends outwards to just the way people interact. So I appreciated it just a little bit more over The Lighthouse because while The Lighthouse was incredible, period pieces are always, there's an element of remoteness and inaccessibility because you can still learn from them like any parable, but it's not going to be as real to a person. And for me, I empathize a lot with Danny and Midsummer and Peter or whoever Tony Collette's character was in Hereditary, because these are characters that I feel like all the time and that I feel like I see all the time and I have a lot of empathy with. So that's why I like Midsummer the most. Mm-hmm. And it's surreal, and I'm really into that right now. I think I really enjoyed this film because not only is it this kind of daylight nightmare there's the binary opposition of that. But I think that it just stands out as a revolutionary piece for horror film. That's not a genre that I'm typically drawn to. Mm-hmm. Um, like I love The Shining and there's definitely certain horror films that I love. But I just think what's happening right now with directors like Ari Aster and the director of The Lighthouse. Robert Eggers. Exactly. Um, I think that what's happening with that genre is really revolutionary and that's why i was specifically so impressed with this film is like what it's doing for the genre yeah seeing like these films recently have made me so much more attracted to what's happening with horror Kristen, why did you like midsummer so much probably less intellectual reasons than the two of you nonsense i enjoyed it because the actual experience was cathartic to me. And also, I think I've already described just how I didn't expect by the end of the film to feel the elation that I felt 
and it was almost like the experience of the film was a therapy session <laughs> for me because I remember the drive home because I saw it with you and Stephen Alley and I remember thinking wow I feel like I just went through a really healing therapy session. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it is very therapeutic in a weird way for the fact that it's ultimately kind of a breakup film. It's full core, by the way, of breakup, but Ari Aster just calls it a fairy tale movie. With like a breakup inside. The breakup is the story. It's the catalyst and the propelling force for these characters, specifically the way Danny has a character arc in this movie is mm -hmm. because of, well... The, the reason why she's here is because of the death of her family. But the plot of the movie is essentially in the story of her relationship with Christian falling apart and their breakup. Yeah, I think their relationship is really fascinating throughout the entire film. I did want to touch on the visuals in terms of the actual art and the experience that you're taking in because the whole film is full of saturated color and florals and pageantry and all these different things where you're just flooded with delight. And kind of like what Kristen said, she kind of left the movie on an elated state. But then you're also flooded with really horrific acts that happen towards the end of the film as well as the beginning scene. Yeah, the beginning really set the tone for the movie. Exactly. Exactly. And so you have this binary opposition throughout the film and you're almost not sure what to feel. Are you entranced? Are you enchanted? Or are you terrified, terrified, <laughs> disgusted? I mean, there's just so many different things. And even the question of morality, like Danny, who, you know, she's going into it as a specific type of person. And then all the people that she's with in terms of her boyfriend and his friends, they're all anthropology students, I think, getting their PhDs. And so they're going into it from a completely different perspective. And so it's really interesting to see from her point of view versus their point of view. But Kristen was kind of talking about earlier, one of the beginning scenes when she is crying in Christian's arms. What were you saying about that? The grief that Danny experiences as a character and when she enters this new community by the end of the film, she is embraced and mirrored in her pain. The way she's experiencing that relationship all apart, but she's moving into this new relationship that for her is incredibly healthy, but it's still kind of a codependency. So like you said, she was being held by Christian at the beginning, but it wasn't really a relationship built out of mutual love and respect. And then by the end of the film, she's being essentially held by these, I don't want to call them cultists. It's the village of Horga, the Swedish community. And they seem to genuinely care about Danny's well-being. So like you said, contrasting that from the beginning of the film to the end, it seems like she's really found a place where she can fit in and belong and be happy. The beginning of the film starts out with Florence Pugh's character, Danny, going through a tragedy. Her sister is bipolar, and her sister, in a state of extreme depression, decides to essentially murder her parents and take her own life as well. And Danny has to deal with that tragedy, and she's extremely emotional and doesn't know what to do, and she's looking to her boyfriend, Christian, for emotional comfort and support. And he is there for her. But there's this scene that happens very early in the film where Danny is laying in his lap and she's wailing. She's, she's crying in extreme agony. And he is there for her. He's holding her. And later in the film, another character that is one of Christian's friends who invited them all to Sweden, his name is Pele, he asks Danny the question, do you feel held by Christian? And it's this really interesting contrast and question that's brought up throughout the film of what emotional support actually is. Yeah, totally. And like, yes. not only what emotional support is, but it's also about what it means to process your emotions in a healthy way because there's a huge contrast between how Danny um, processes her emotions before she enters into that world and then once she enters into that world, how they process the emotions with her because that scene of her wailing with Christian mimics a scene later in the film when she's also wailing in agony and the people embrace her and literally mimic her wailing and her emotions. So they're basically telling her through mimicking her that it's okay to do this. It's okay to let this out. And they're holding her in a completely new sense. Yeah, she's, she's dealing at that moment 
with the entire experience of all the traumatic things we've seen in the film thus far. She's processing the death of her parents simultaneously with this bizarre community and the horrific things she's seen there. And then this penultimate thing that's happening, which is Christian essentially cheated on her. And now she's wailing and she's crying out in that soul-rending kind of grief. You're, it feels surreal in and of itself because she is completely destroyed by what she's seen. And then the community of women of Helga, they rally around her. And I'm curious to know what you guys think about whether or not you thought that was genuine. I know Stephen feels a little differently than I do. Yeah, firstly, I just wanted to apologize to the listener for us jumping around so much. It's hard to talk about this film with not going back and forth throughout the timeline of the film and talking about the themes that are so prevalent throughout. Secondly, this particular scene that Gabe was just describing, I did feel was sort of contrived. I felt like... I think that's totally fair to feel it's contrived. I think you're accurate in saying there's no way that they could be experiencing what she's experiencing in that moment because of what she's gone through. There's no way that they can totally be empathetic. But I think the sympathy is there. And I think it's the attempt to not only bridge that divide, but to also really come around her and surround her with this support group that this is why it captivated me the most. And it's my most favorite scene of the film is because I've never seen in my entire life that sense of complete and selfless community where these women who really have no reason to be there, are surrounding her and supporting her in her ultimate time of need. And they express that through the mimicry and the wailing and the crying and the screaming and the moaning. But it feels genuine to me because they have no reason to do that. There's nothing in it for them except to help this person. It felt to me almost like mockery. And that's kind of why I felt the way that I did about that scene. And it's it's not that I don't like that scene or appreciate what it's trying to do, but the way that that scene landed on me when I first watched it was that it was contrived and difficult to get on board with the emotion in that scene. Ari Aster has expressed his obsession in the past with the maudlin or this drunken sense of sincerity. And that's what it felt like to me when these people are really coming around Danny and surrounding her in support, is that there was a a genuine caring for her. Yeah, and I think also it just speaks to the fact that we're not in that cultural landscape yeah. of, of those... It seems foreign to us. Yeah, of that type of empathy or ritual or whatever you want to call it. I know Kristen had a different thought. That was one of my actually that was my favorite scene of the whole entire film. It's the only scene that really brought tears to my eyes. Because of Danny's character arc, she is not able to process her pain and her grief until she's in that community. The culture that we're raised in as Americans is avoidant of so many different things, including emotion, death. We don't like to confront these things. When Danny enters Holga, they enter literally through the image of the sun, and the whole entire rest of the film is bright. And so many things come to light, whether it's horrific, like we said, or these feelings of elation and community that you get from their relationships with one another in this new world that we've entered. So I think for me, watching her be surrounded by these women screaming with her in her pain, that's really the first time she's ever had anybody come into her world of emotion and come into her grief and sit with her in it. For me, it's really like Job in a way. It's like, you don't want your friends to explain things away. You want them to sit with you. And I think the juxtaposition of that scene with the scene in the beginning where she's being held by Christian, you can see that he has emotion. His eyes might be tearing up, but really he's a little bit detached because he's never been taught to process those types of emotions in his life. He's trying to hold her. He's trying to be there for her. And it's this is really just the part of their relationship where it's fallen apart at the seams and they don't understand why they're still together except his girlfriend has just gone through this grief. And so he feels obligated to stay with her. But I think he's disoriented, especially later in the film when he takes the mushrooms and he's sitting at the table watching her as the May Queen. I was struck the second time I watched it with the disorientation that you see on his face in particular, just not really knowing what to do. 
And I think he really wants to be there for her, but he doesn't really know how to pick up the pieces of their broken relationship. And I think a lot of people villainize Christian when I always interpret it as the village itself is actually the antagonistic force in the film. Christian, I think people forget that these protagonists that we're following, they're in college and they're still young and they are, don't really know themselves and they're, they're still trying to figure out their identity. And so they're making decisions that are semi-selfish as a lot of people do when they're in college. And Christian, I think, falls into that category. And I don't think he's actually the villain. I think he's just another character that's kind of along for the ride. And although he tries to be good and he tries to be a good boyfriend for Danny, he falls short. And I don't think that's his fault. And also when Danny kind of decides at the end that she's going to use him as the last sacrifice, I don't really think it's justified. But Gabe, you watched the director's cut and you you said that it kind of added a little bit more to their relationships. Can you speak to that? Yeah, the director's cut added about 30 minutes onto an already long film. It went from two hours and 23 minutes to about 2.50. The initial assembly cut after they shot was four hours. And obviously that's not going to fly for a theatrical release. So A24 worked with him to narrow it down. He cut it down to just under three hours, which he wanted to be it but they wanted it to be reduced a little bit more. So he made a three hour and 20 something minute cut, which they released theatrically. Meanwhile, he was simultaneously working on his quote unquote director's cut, which was a little bit longer. And that extra 27 minutes of footage gave him the chance to a little bit more flesh out the relationships between some of these characters, specifically Christian and Josh and their rivalry in this prospectus program, and also specifically Christian and Danny and their romantic relationship and as it was falling apart at the seams. And like you said, it fleshes Christian's character out a little bit more. I never saw him as the villain. Initially, the viewer is led to believe that he is not an antagonistic force, but that he is to blame or he is the fault. And I'm curious to know if you were to take a poll, how many people would think that it was justified what happened to him at the end of the film? I don't think so. I think, like you said, a lot of the time people are just people, and maybe they're not compatible. Maybe they're young and stupid, and they're trying to figure out who they are still. And I I don't agree that Christian was putting everything into this relationship that he could have, but I don't know what the last four years of their relationship looked like, because that's how long they had been together before the film began. And I would love to see that fleshed out to just really get a feel for who these people were. But in the course of the film, you see uh, Christian as a very vacant character. He's never really there uh, emotionally. He's there physically for Danny, but he's never really there emotionally, and he forgets little details even like her birthday. So, I don't know. I was never really sold on him as uh, as a hero, as someone I wanted to see succeed. I think the perspectives on him are very polarized from different things that I read and heard. I think that it's very divided in terms of what people feel about him, whether he's a villain character or a scapegoat character or a character you empathize with. I think it's really up to interpretation. I don't even know if the director had a specific agenda with him, but I do think he was more focused on Danny and what he was doing with Danny and kind of just what she was going through in her emotions. And I think it was almost about justifying all of her emotions, regardless of whatever Christian was in reality. Yeah. At the end of the day, this was, in Ari Aster's own words, uh, I mean, he's called it a fairy tale, or you could call it full quarter, but in, he's used the term, it's a perverse wish fulfillment fantasy. And so everything is from Danny's perspective, and I think Ari Aster put most of himself into the character of Danny and what he was going through at the time. But like you said, I don't think it's fair to say that Christian is any less of a person or has any less of a character because of that. He's going through his own journey. He's trying to figure out who he is as a person, even at the expense of the people around him, whether it's Danny or Josh. I mean, he's stealing Josh's thesis, for God's sakes, which is a big deal. I was actually going to say, speaking to something that Kristen said, which is the westernized thinking I think that a lot of the audience of this movie has come to know will be the angle at which they approach this film. And when they view this film, I think that a lot of the foreign events that occur in this film will feel extremely jarring to them. And I think one of the characters you're following is Christian's friend Pele, and he's from this society, from Sweden. And 
how he comes across, how he speaks, and his motives throughout the film are also a little bit jarring. You never can quite put your finger on whether his motives are actually good or whether they're they're actually bad or whether he's for Danny or for Christian or um, for what he calls his family back home. But the play off of being in a foreign land and us feeling that unfamiliarity, I think is a huge driving force behind how we as an audience experience the film. Strangers in a Strange Land. Did you guys consider the community of Helga as more of an antagonistic force or a villain per se in that context? So I personally don't see, is it Helga or Holga? Horga. It's H-A-R-G-A, but it's a little bit more pronounced whore than har. It's Horga. Or you call it Helsingland. Okay, so (laughs) I don't see their society as villainous at all. I see them as subversive. I like the word subversive in that context. And I see them as providing a space for Danny to go through what she actually needs to go through. To confront her grief, to be held by a community, to be put in a position of power again (laughs) in some some respects. Or maybe for the first time. Yeah, exactly. And to find a sense of belonging to a place where she can be herself and thrive. Yeah, I kind of see this as, for me, it's not whether their practices are good or bad. That's not the question for me. The question is, how does this provide an opportunity for her to confront what she has not been allowed to confront or what she's been afraid to confront in her life? The other thing I was thinking about is almost that her character in particular, she has this ascension and Christian's character has this descent I pity him, honestly, more than anything. Yeah. Like I said, I think he's just kind of wandering through the whole film. And there's these moments where Danny is actually happy or thriving for the first time. And she looks over and he's not able to connect with that experience. Where, especially when she's dancing, she only smiles, I think, four or five times in the whole entire film. And that each smile is very significant. And one of them is when she's dancing and um, she looks over at him and he's totally unconnected. To interject, there's also that one scene where she says Connie's fiance left and she's super worried about Connie and why her fiance would leave her. And Christian just dismisses it and she's just staring at him. And he's talking about something else. I think he's talking about his thesis the whole time, but she's just staring at him the whole time. I think it almost goes on for like a whole minute. She gets gaslighted a lot in this film. Over and over. Gaslighting is like if you thought that something was true or something happened and I just denied completely that it happened or that reality was... You're making them think you're crazy. Essentially, You make them think that they're crazy. To draw a comparison, it's what um, Willem Dafoe did to Robert Pattinson in The Lighthouse. Right, right, right. It's what happened when we recorded the last podcast and we thought that it was recording (laughs) and then we found out that it wasn't. Who's gaslighting who? That is super interesting though in terms of like control because I was thinking of Lighthouse and how it's all about this kind of power struggle, but also in this film, like between Danny and Christian and how it's all flopped on top of its head in terms of in the beginning, she's not in control, but in the end, and she's crowned and she becomes one of them mm-hmm. in terms of her wardrobe and her literal title as May Queen. And then Christian is left immobilized and burned. Yeah, she's um, cut all ties with her last previous life. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's interesting how it completely flips for her as a character and for him as a character. Her agency is an interesting thing to discuss and how she gains agency throughout the film. I was thinking about that last image of him burning in the triangular yellow house. And you can really feel that this is somebody who has broken up or gone through the loss of a relationship because the end of the film is so cathartic. It's like you're watching that relationship burn. You're watching it be done finally. (laughs) And there's something about going through a relationship for that long all of the good and the bad and doing something like that where to me it's really not about murder in particular or it's not about the vindication aspect jack rayner was talking about how this is a film about vindication i actually disagree. He said that? i disagree yeah, i heard that too that's and, interesting and i disagree with his reading of that in particular who's I, being vindicated because i could see danny yeah i think i might agree a little bit with that but i'm curious to know why you don't 
I don't agree. If you mean vindication, as in she is finally getting what she deserves in terms of a family, that's different for me than vindication in terms of he gets what he deserves. I personally think that last image for me is more symbolic than it is him getting what he deserves because he's such a bad person. Does that make sense? So he's not a bad person. It's just more she finally is in this position where she can let him go. And that's the... But I think there is a little bit of contempt there. And that's where the moral ambiguity of the film, I think, really shines. I mean, you're constantly... What does her smile mean at the end? Yeah. And in my head, or at least initially, and I think what I've come back around to is that there is a level of vindictive spirit there that she wants this person to suffer because he wasn't there for her when she needed him. That bittersweet ending of her finally having... She's getting that agency. She's becoming herself and finding a new home is contrasted directly with the fact that she's basically kind of a bad person now because she has committed this person to die. Hmm. The smile at the end is really interesting because you could interpret it as she snapped, actually. After all this trauma she's gone through, she's actually um, had a full breakdown and she's completely gone crazy. But you could also interpret it that she's smiling because she's finally found a home that she's been looking for. And that was one of the bigger themes that I picked out when I originally saw the film was these themes of loss and also trying to find a home. And you could say that she's trying to find a home in Christian kind of throughout the whole film and then eventually finds it in this community that she wasn't actually looking for, but it just indirectly happened that way. Another one of the larger themes that I think stuck out is control. Danny at the start of the film has no control, and at the end she is given the power, and she has the control, and she's able to make that call about Christian and condemning him to be the last and final sacrifice. And it's kind of her character arc for this film. She has no control, and then in the end she has control, and she has the power. And those themes are are the more straightforward themes. But there's so much happening and that's what i think makes this film great at the end of the day is that there's so much subtext there's so much going on behind and underneath the surface of this film beneath the control beneath the power struggles beneath the audience interpretation of how you would view other cultures beneath the weird like runic images and the rustic nature of everything beneath all of that there's a lot going on and i think that's what makes this film so great just like lighthouse there's just so much to talk about here and so much of what ari aster was actually trying to do i think you what did you say that ari aster said he wanted out of this film he wanted people to feel and not necessarily to understand what was happening he makes movies based on emotions and he likes to throw around the word intellectual just like we do but it's not something that you can take for face value and really understand it at an initial viewing it's something that you have to sit with and wrestle with and to feel uh just like the main characters do and it's interesting you talk about control because i think in both of astor's films and in, in the lighthouse you see this exploration of what it means to be in control and to search for that because that's what gives you a sense of stability and security and there's even a part early on in hereditary where you're inside of a classroom and some lit teacher is giving a lecture on i think it's heracles And he's talking about these characters that are so consumed by arrogance and hubris and this idea of control that they're ignoring all these signs that are constantly around them. This world that is driving them inevitably towards a fate that they're not aware of or that they can escape. And so it's funny to see these characters drawn right into that and then be destroyed by it. Except for Danny, who is able to rise out and above that and find that sense of control because she was the only one who was really open to being affected in the first place and to be open to the world. So I I think it's interesting to read the film in that particular way. At the same time, I think this society in particular is about letting go of control. And by that, I mean the sort of individualism that we have in our society does not exist there. Even when Pele is talking to her, he's talking to um, Danny. He says that his community doesn't differentiate between what's theirs and what's not theirs. But then he says he's always felt held by a family, which everyone deserves. 
and she deserves. So, and then when you think about the Cenocide, which is also called Atastupa, which is this folklore that the people in Sweden, when they got to a certain age, would throw themselves from cliffs once they... What did you call it? Cenocide? Cenocide. So that older people giving themselves up to death for the sake of the society not having to take care of them. And when you think about what the leader of their group... And I don't remember the woman? her name. Yes. I think it was like Siv or something. Siv. Yeah. So she says, instead of dying in pain, fear, and shame, we give our life as a gesture before mm-hmm. it can spoil. It does no good dying, lashing back at the inevitable. It corrupts the spirit. I guess the comment I wanted to make on the control in the film is that this society, even though Danny is in control at the end of the film, they're all about giving up control in terms of... The individuality, having control over your life, giving yourself as an offering at any point, it might be your time to die or be given up in the sense that it's really not about having control and keeping it. It's about for her having confronted finally and let herself experience all of the pain and the suffering that she's been through because there's no safety for her in this society. There's no safety for any of them. If you don't die when you're 72, then you know you could have gotten sacrificed. The kids aren't even raised by their own mothers. And they talk about a certain part in the film where this child's mother is off on a pilgrimage because it helps her detach from being a mother, that the children there are raised by everybody. So that's all I wanted to say about control is that for me at the end of the film, it's kind of more about her having confronted her pain, now being in this position where she's raised up and is able to let go of what Christian might have symbolized in her life, which is her constant apologies for existing or for feeling anything at all. Apologizing for him not remembering her birthday. Apologizing for feeling, trying to hide her pain, trying to run away from her pain. All of that is up in flames at the end of the film. It's not just the dead relationship. It's not just the fact that she's been vindicated or had her revenge on him. It's all of those things that the men even represented in the film as American men for her. I heard um, one interpretation when Ari was giving an interview, this woman in the audience was saying she viewed all of the men in the film almost as figments of Danny's psyche, where they represented different parts of her, her brain that were trying to suppress her actual self. So one of the themes that I wrote down is liberation. She's become free of all of these things by the end of the film. On the theme of liberation, I think it's really interesting to note again that Kristen, you know, had said this earlier, but everything is so bright and full of light. And I think that also speaks to the liberation theme, just how everything was shot and everything was so bright and beautiful and full of color and life the whole time. That even the violence was beautiful. Yeah, even in, in face of death, there's just so much light everywhere and beauty. Mm-hmm. Which makes the audience question how they should even be feeling. Is it okay to feel delight in the face of horror or something horrible happening to someone? But off of what Kristen was saying, how the men are archetypes, I didn't think or read too much into it, but I did think it was interesting just the ways in which each of the men died. Specifically, I'm thinking of Mark, who's the kind of opinionated the asshole asshole exactly he's um and he ends up being the fool his face is skinned and then like a gesture hat or something like that is placed on his head and there's even a reference to skinning the fool earlier by Pele and so there definitely is a lot of layered symbolism in terms of how these characters are represented and what they might mean in Danny's psyche or to the audience is something to definitely think about more What did you guys think of the role of aesthetic beauty or the visual delight that you're experiencing in the film and how it perhaps masks the horrific images that you're consuming? Do you think it hinders your emotional experience at all? No, I think it completely supports it, or it, it is the experience. I mean, that's why it's a fairy tale and not branded as a horror film, is because you're seeing, after the first 10 or 15 minutes of the film, which are shot in urban settings and some darkness, the rest of the film is shot in light and exteriors, mm-hmm. for the most part. 
And it is a real testament to the fact that you can make a film with such not just terrific imagery, but heavy subject matter mm-hmm. and shoot it and execute that vision in such a way that you're conflicted the whole time. You're like, should I be happy? Right. Should I be sad? Should I be scared? And that's a huge credit both, well, to his DP, Pavel, and to his entire team that worked with him through everything, you know, production design, costume design. But it's also in the way that Ari Aster shoots his films. There are these long lingering shots, both in the beginning when Danny's on the phone with Christian. Well, she's trying to have him console her after she's dealing with the trauma of her family. And it just sits on her face for two minutes in this close-up shot, and you just see her reacting without a cut, and you completely live in the experience. And that transfers over when they're in the village of Horga. There are these long, slow, sometimes it's zooming in or panning in on a, on a dolly or to the side, and it's just letting you live in that world for a little bit longer. And that's why Ari makes longer movies, is because he wants you to experience being there and for it to feel natural and intuitive Mm -hmm. and you feel like you're living in that scene Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so the light is just the aesthetic they were going for in this film and I, i think he really executed on his vision to make you feel conflicted about what you're seeing at all times Mm -hmm. and that bleeds through into the subtext of Mm -hmm. what's happening on the scene I completely agree. When they walk into the bunk room and there's all these different murals and one of them literally says, oh, it's like a new world. It's Mm -hmm. like a different world. Yeah. Going back to the kind of that Alice in Wonderland comparison. And yeah, I think that's what this film does for the audience as well as you step into this new world, whether you're stepping into a folk horror film for the male characters who are visiting or if you're stepping into a fairy tale for Danny, I think they coincide and they're in tandem throughout the film and you're not sure which one you're in yeah as the audience yeah exactly and just like steven said earlier every part of this film is strange not just for the characters and but also for the audience and that unfamiliarity and that kind of cultural dissonance that you don't really understand what's going on and neither do the characters that's what provides the terror and not just Mm -hmm. like what you said but the way you see it and it doesn't have to be the kill scenes but it can just be like the way they sit at a table seems so strange and foreign to us yeah therein lies the genius of the filmmaking i think too yeah. Because it must have taken a lot of work mm-hmm. for a Westerner to make a film like this. A good example of what Gabe's talking about, I think, is when the the girl comes up to Mark at the table. Oh, my God. And she says, come. you come? He, yeah. And he, he goes, <laughs> his response is, uh, what? And then she goes, I'll, I'll show you. You'll come. And then, <laughs> and then, and then he's just like, okay. <laughs> She's going to show me. Yeah. He's, she, and then he makes kind of a joke out of it because he thinks he's going to get some sexual gratification. Maybe he did. We don't know. Yeah. Who knows? And then he was but, never seen again. But then, you know, then we find out later he's basically been skinned alive. Skinned alive. Yeah. Or maybe dead. Yeah. We don't know. But it's that foreignness that I think really plays into uh, and creates the tone that makes Ari's style. This film and Ari's style, yeah. That's why I love his movies so much, if I can cut you off. And I didn't really get to, exp- maybe I did try to explain this in The Lighthouse, but why I love these films so much is because it's strange and surreal. And so much is left to the imagination. In your classic conventional horror slasher film, you're seeing the death. But in a lot of the cases in these movies, like with Mark, for instance, it's off screen. And you don't see whatever happened to him. You're just left to imagine mm-hmm. the terror of it yeah. all. I have a term I use because I started loving this kind of thing like a year or two ago in some other books. And then these movies were made and I was like, this is realized on screen it's incredible i use the term pervasive sense of wrongness and that just means at every point in the movie there is something terrible looming around the corner or whether or not the characters know it there's this existential dread that is driving things forward so when that girl comes up to mark in that scene and she's like you'll come it's kind of comedic and it's funny but you know something terrible is going to happen and mark's oblivious mark's just excited to get laid but the audience and the characters if they were really paying attention to the signs as they would know this as well this is very bad this is wrong and something terrible is about to happen and that's why these movies are so good is because it's all very very subtle and and underplayed and you're just left to put the pieces together something terrible as in death which no american wants to accept death is the best terrible thing that could happen for these characters 
Yeah. I mean, think about it. Thinking about what they'd already seen so far up to the film, there are what they would perceive to be <laughs> miserable ways to go or to be mutilated or to be, you know, it could be torture. And I, I'm led to believe that Mark did so not... pain. Yeah, pain. And basically. death, yeah, which you, no man can avoid. You said it much better than I did. Pain is worse than death. Well, I don't know. I That's kind of what I was thinking about is that this culture puts all those things right in your face mm-hmm. when as a culture we try to avoid them and I think there are aspects of other cultures in which they deal with those things much more healthily. It's almost like Ari is giving us this other world to say what if things were different? What if we approached them differently? Not to say that this other way is right necessarily, but for us to leave our perspectives and then return with something different. It's a great commentary for the world at large. The inability to try to understand what you're seeing. I mean... But what person can actually avoid either pain or death? No one, but everyone tries. And like <laughs> and, you said, well, we're, that's the thing is that our society is the yeah. worst with we were the, actually we're the best at avoiding both pain and death. The people in this room, we no, are. we as Americans oh. are the best at avoiding pain and death. However, it comes to find us, and that's where the horror of it all is, and that's why I think thinking about the word horror is things that we want to hide from or things that are hidden being brought to light are brought to light in this film. And then the question is, this is go, goes back to Ali's question about the aesthetic beauty of the film, is that you're left to question what is really so terrible? So even the images that you get of the body that's open and the lungs are still kind of moving and breathing perhaps even yeah, though he was alive when so, simon was flayed but you're supposed to look at that and be shocked and disgusted but at the same time the image is so beautiful that you're kind of left not knowing what to think like you said so i think the film leaves you with that but then it leaves you with like your quintessential horror thing where there's a leg sticking out of the ground mm-hmm. you know it's not afraid to return to the genre <laughs> return to the genre yeah so but i guess my thought is just more like this world really is for me a what if we approached things differently and what would that look like and how would that provide space for a person like Danny who's experienced so much pain? What would it look like for her to be able to process in that type of community? Yeah, I like that idea and that perspective. It almost is like Ari Aster is saying that he does not feel comfortable in the United States Western society, which I think a lot of us feel that way. I think a lot of people who are awake to that type of thinking and can perceive that level of disconnect, feel uncomfortable not connecting with the people around them or feeling held. Well, and this is worth bringing up, which is the difference between the suicides in the film, between, you know, her family and her sister versus the suicides that happen in this community. In no way is it an affirmation that suicide is necessarily ever a good thing. However, you see these people approaching death in a different way than her sister with mental illness, approaching death as something to embrace instead of... Oh, and and the life cycle, because they name the children after the person who has died, so they see life as a cycle. Although I think there's still room to interpret that as horrific, especially from the American perspective, but when you look at the looks on the older people's faces they in particular look pretty grim in that part of the film yeah i never got the idea they're not smiling they weren't excited to go uh jump off the cliff it also brings up the question to mind what is identity actually because in westernized culture identity we claim that we know identity we all have identity and we seek after our own individualistic identities but if you're named after people that have passed before you and you become part of this culture in um, the society that we see in midsummer you kind of have a lack of identity you become the person that was before you, you become part of this integrated systemic culture that you have no control in that culture to choose differently. But it also brings another question to mind, which is, is the identity that we have here in our westernized society good? Is that a good thing to claim that we have and also have the pursuit of such an identity and to have such an individualistic mindset on a macro sense? 
that we have here. Is there such a thing as the individual? Is I think you can have both. I think you can have a strong sense of the individual self and still have that for community as well. Here in this movie, I think we really see it's like Ari's saying, well, here's here's one extreme and then here's another extreme. Yeah. And here's where identity or lack of identity can take you. You know, mm -hmm. I agree. Just really quickly, at the end, when she becomes the May Queen and she's lavished in all of these different flowers, mm -hmm. and the flowers are seemingly breathing, Chris and I were just chatting earlier about just the blooming of her character and how it's symmetrical to all of the, the literal blooming that you're seeing with the florals and all of that. And, and it was just interesting. It escalates thought. throughout the film as well. Yeah, yeah. In, in the beginning... When they first take the drugs at the village, she has her hand on the ground and there's a little bit of grass sprouting mm -hmm. through her palm mm -hmm. out the other side. And then later on when she's about to dance, her feet, she looks down yeah. and she's on she's intoxicated again. Her feet are like uh, yeah. shrubbery. Yeah. And then towards the very end, she's interacting with the seat she's on and she is intuitively moving through the leaves and the leaves are reacting to mm -hmm. her movement. It's mm -hmm. almost like even as there are no lines between individuals, there mm -hmm. are no lines between individuals and the earth. Yeah, and I think Pele said as much earlier on in the first interaction, once they're on the drugs, he said, nature knows intuitively, there's that word again, how to keep things in balance. Like, mm -hmm. like you said, as if everything was one. And you see throughout the film when they're on drugs or hallucinogens, whatever you want to call them, that the environment is very subtly moving and shifting. And that's another reason why I was immediately drawn to the aesthetic is because this world is moving and it seems like the world is alive around you. Yeah, that's super cool. Interesting. I think we've talked Midsummer to death yeah. twice. We've done it twice now. Well, hopefully everybody liked this Midsummer podcast. I know I did. Twice. <laughs> yeah, and now in similar form as we did in the last podcast, and because these are both two outstanding A24 films, a dramatic reading of the final pages of Midsommar, read by none other than Kristen Burnett. Olf's screams are heard from the sacred house. Suddenly, every member of the Horgan community who is not singing begins to scream as well. Feeling Olf's pain, they emit a horrible chorus of wails. When Olf's screams die down, so do theirs. Meanwhile, Reuben has been given paper to paint on. Two elders encourage him. Danny, watching the burning house with fraught eyes, is suddenly met with a wave of conflicting emotions. Her expression curdles into one of sheer horror and disgust. Then it becomes one of deep sorrow and shame. Her eyes well with tears. The singing has now harmonized and has risen to an insane operatic pitch. We cut to an immense wide. Danny's back is in the foreground, and the burning house is in the background. Overcome, Danny buries her face in her hands. Breaking into gentle sobs, she begins to walk aimlessly to the side. We track alongside her, keeping her centered. She is circling the house, pulling at her hair and face in increasing anguish. She is weeping now, and the house ever-present in the background has become engulfed in the raging flames. Danny begins moaning and screaming. Her howls almost harmonize with the singing in the background. The fire roars and crackles in the distance. It's apocalyptic. Soon, it's uncertain whether Danny is crying or laughing. Her legs become weak and she collapses to her knees. Four Horgans, one of them being Pele, runs into the scene carrying a large chair, Danny's throne. The Horgans lift Danny by the arms and seat her on the throne. Then they hoist the chair into the air. On the upward lift, we cut to a tight close-up of Danny's face. She is being carried forward. Her expression, which begins as one of great distress, slowly starts to turn. Her agony subsides into sudden confusion. What's happening? Where am I? I'm on this chair, being carried. Her expression goes from fear to excitement to confusion again. She suddenly lets out an abrupt laugh, which we can't hear over the music and now the deafening fire. 
Danny is now being taken over by an invading sense of pride and contentment. This soon evolves into a manic exhilaration. Danny beams. She has been embraced by a new family. She is clean. She is not alone. A smile finally breaks onto Danny's face. For some, this smile might recall the photo of Danny in her parents' bedroom at the beginning of the film. She has surrendered to a joy known only by the insane. She has lost herself completely, and she is finally free. It is horrible, and it is beautiful. Wow. That was really good. That was uh, Bobby Krillick's last track on the Midsummer OST. It was The Fire Temple. And it was cut down a little bit for Kristen to read over. Uh, Gabe, take us out. This has uh, been the Midsummer podcast. This podcast happens only once every 90 years. There will be people um, with our names in the next generation who do another podcast on Midsummer. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Our children's children. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Allie and Kristen for being here again. Yes, thank you guys. This has been awesome. It was a privilege. It was a pleasure. One time, I hope to do this again. <laughs> I also hope to do this again. Um, just not this particular podcast again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to do Midsummer version 3? <laughs> no. Um, should we all do our breathing exercises? <gasps> Robbed in its youth. Speaking of Rob, little Robbie Pattinson. You know what else was robbed? It was all of the Batman fans for that stupid Batmobile. It's gonna be fine. I don't know if it is. We, I don't. It's in, really in, judge. In what world do you ever see Batman say, "I'm gonna step into my car right now"? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna open the side door and step into my car. Hey, if comics have taught us anything, there's always room to completely refresh the franchise this whole thing is comical having to re-record the whole midsummer podcast twice is comical yeah it's an exercise in futility (laughs) 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 the boy who lived come to die Actually, 1.40 in the morning right now. No, it's not. No, it's, I swear to God. 1.40, but there's daylight savings. Oh, rats. I didn't save any daylight today.